When you need to refuel between meetings or running errands, or you just want a healthy snack that squashes your hunger, wonderful pistachios, which come in a variety of flavors and sizes, by the way, are the perfect choice to fill you up and keep you going throughout the day. Wonderful Pistachios is also a good source of protein and a zero-guilt snack. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, guys, which gives you over 10% of your daily value. And with flavors like salt and pepper, sweet chili, and seasoned salt in the shelled variety, options like chili roasted, sea salt, and vinegar or jalapeno lime in the no-shell variety, you're sure to please your taste buds while snacking healthy. So check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more about how these little green wonders can power up your day. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right, who has not taken advantage of the week free trial of the fitness app yet. Check it out. It is a one-stop shop for all your fitness, nutrition, and wellness needs, custom meal plans, personalized workout programs, meditations, sleep programs, community support, and so much more. You can use it on any device, anywhere, any place, anytime, no equipment needed or all the equipment in the world is in there. There's yoga, there's kickboxing, there's audio only workouts, there's HIIT training, weight loss programs, prenatal programs, anything and everything you can think of is in the fitness app. And if you go to the fitnessapp.com slash podcast deal, you can get 25% off an annual subscription for $89.99 a year. So check it out and start your free trial today. Welcome to Keeping It Real Conversations with Jillian Michaels. All right, team. Today, our guest is Dr. Robin Chetkin, rock star gastroenterologist, author of The Viral Gut. And we had her on a little while back. She was such a smashing success that we literally got dozens of questions from you guys on all things gut health, which prompted us to begin a six-month series with her. So she'll be on once a month answering your questions hitting different subject matters. And today's is actually to help establish if you have a gut health problem or if there's something else going on. I see so many questions from you guys wondering, like, how do I know if it's weight? How do I know if I'm bloated? How do I know if it's a microbiome thing? What if it's something more serious like Crohn's or ovarian cancer? So that's what we're going to be looking at with Dr. Chutkin. Um, But first... I am coming at you with some sage advice. I've just said, Cindy, <laughs> from uh, from the experiences of the life of Jillian Michaels, I swear to you, I, I really do think one day I'm going to go back and write that book called What I Know Now. Holy cow. There's just so many things that go ridiculously wrong and sideways that we can't prevent. You know what I mean? But there's so many things mm-hmm. that go ridiculously wrong and sideways that we can and I want to try to help you guys prevent the chaos that's preventable. And 
the way you do that is by living your life with the end in mind. And I don't mean death. I mean the <laughs> end of every possible scenario, right? Like when you go to write a book, you write the end. Like if you talk to a, fi a fiction person, they're like, you got to know the end of the story in order to write the story. Like how do we get from A to Z? If you get in the car and you're going somewhere, you're mapping to the end, right? Where am I going? Okay. Whereas I think so often we get up and we just put one foot in front of the other. We react to different things and we don't realize how every decision we do or don't make, whether we're thinking about it when we make it or not, or whether we're not thinking at all and we take action can have really serious repercussions, whether it's who you date, whether it's who you get into business with, whether it's what Uber you get into, whether it's, you know, if you floss your teeth or not, like these decisions, you don't floss your teeth. You don't like it. That could cost you $20,000 in dental work in the next decade. I've seen it. I've seen that happen, right? I've seen people that are like, right, like, and it's like, why me? Well, because you didn't take amazing care of your teeth. That's why. That's why you, right? Like it's preventable in large part. I mean, just about teeth. I just read that that is the number one cause of pneumonia in hospitals post-surgical uh, stays. Not what? taking care of your teeth can infections. cause pneumonia. Yeah, Jesus. infections, exactly. But it's like, okay, mm. so if we scrape our tongue and we floss and we use the antimicrobial, you know, mouthwash, right? You got a much better chance of preventing all that. We We constantly get into these situations and it's like, why me? Now, look, bad shit happens to good people. I get it. I I get it. And there's so much that's out of our control. But, you know, you date the jerk and it's like, well, you're caught up in passion. You think he'll get better. You think you can change him or you think you can change her, right? However, whatever. You, you know, you, you're, you're impulsive. You get married quickly. Fixable. Fixable. You have person kids with that. You have persons with that person. Yeah. <laughs> you have kids with that person. It is a prison sentence. So you better before you're like, oh, I want a kid. I want a kid. I just want a kid. You better really think about who you're having that kid with. And I can't tell you how many of your friends are like, I just want a baby. And it's like, uh, have that baby then on your own because mm. no, I want my baby to have a dad. Okay, sure. <laughs> And guess what happens when dad is an a-hole? You'll be in court with dad for the next 18 years. And I'm not exaggerating. I've seen it. I've seen it over and over and over. And that little mess has hit just about every adult I know in their 40s. Pretty much every single one. And it's like, I get it. You know, maybe it goes south and you can't control it. Okay, fine. But when you go to make these big decisions, is this the kind of person that's going to wreck your life for the next two decades? You, know, you, you, you've got to think about all these small decisions that you don't think about every day and all the big decisions really play them through the end and play out the worst case scenario. There was, um, oh my God, just another day in the life with me, uh, uh, <laughs> oh, another no. lawsuit trying to extort me for money. And it's like, Literally, because people are just thinking like, oh, they'll settle, right? Because nobody wants to deal with it. Right. Nobody wants to pay. I don't settle lawsuits. So, you know, I was talking to my lawyer and he's like, well, and he was talking about trial. And I was like, Paul, there's no way this goes to trial. This is ridiculous. And he's like, he goes, Jill, it doesn't matter. He goes, every single thing. He goes, a good lawyer 
litigates every single case as to the end, right? Like all the way to the trial. Oh, yeah. This is a, a different lawyer I have for something else. And um, it's like, I I was thinking, God, you know what? what? I should know better. I should know that we should mm. be approaching things like that. And I know better. I know not to lend people money. And as I was doing it, I said to Deshanna, I was like, you know, nothing good comes of this. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah. As, as I was doing it, and she's like, we wanted to be heroes. We wanted to be the good guys, right? Like, we wanted to, like, help and all this stuff. And I was like, you know something? If this works out, okay, fine, great. But, you know, they could probably find another way. If it doesn't work out, it's not going to be win. Yeah. Or not. That's and your I worst. Bet. Yep. Your worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. That's, that's a very good point. Because if you weigh the best case outcome and the worst case outcome, that really kind of yeah. makes your decision in, in a lot of things. A hundred percent. My shrink's like, I, is it worth it? Is it worth the risk? Is it good enough yeah, to take the risk? Yeah. Does the reward outweigh the risk because everything in life is a choice guys whether you realize you're making it or not so i I want you to take some time and especially with your health nobody thinks about it it's a choice whether you choose an orange that's not organic or raspberries that aren't organic that's a choice one has more poison on it than another do it every single day it's going to make a big difference in 10 years a choice all these things are choices. How many drinks a week you have? Big choice. Can I affect you big time down the road? All of these things. So stop today and think through what are the choices I'm making in my health or not making, right? Or ignoring or pretending are not conscious choices. What are the choices I'm making in my personal relationships? What are the choices I'm making professionally? And look, we're always wrong. Like you can't tell the future. And I'll never forget my mom, you know, when I was a kid and used to do stupid shit, like drive around without the <laughs> license plate on my car because my dad didn't, you know? So I was like, ah, I don't know what I was thinking. It was just my dad didn't. So for some reason, I didn't. I don't know why. I don't know what I thought I was getting away with. You have a VIN number on the front of your car. You know what I mean? You're going to get your car. You're going to get tickets. Your car's going to get booted. And my mom's like, you're going to get pulled over without that license plate. And I was like, oh, my God, stop, mom. And sure enough, right, I would get pulled over. And I was like, you jinx me every time you say these things. She goes, honey, sometimes <laughs> the writing is the writing on the wall, right? Like sometimes two plus two is four. The math does work out the way you think that it would. And um, so that's that's kind of what I want to throw out there to you guys today is life sucks. Bad shit happens to good people. It is unfair a lot of the time. And there's a good portion we are not in control of. But there is a good portion that we we are like masters of our own destiny. We do have the ability to control the outcome of some things. We are not victims in every single aspect of our lives. And I, I want you to stop and take some time to really think about it. Think about, you know, the consequences of your choices, how they could play out, what you could do differently. Does the reward outweigh the risk? And see if you can't prevent some catastrophes down the road. And while this might seem, and I'm almost wrapping up because I know we have we have to get moving on to segment two. <laughs> but while while this might seem like, oh, that advice never turned into something great, you'll never know because you will <laughs> never know all of the disasters that you have averted. So just trust me, take the time and do the work. All right, we're gonna take a quick break with the sponsors and we will be right back. 
All right, team. You know, I love Skims underwear because I've mentioned them and have been wearing them for, gosh, a little over a year now. So I finally had to try their bras and Skims has delivered yet again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. Even the underwire bras I wear all day are so comfortable, I barely even notice I'm wearing them. Whether it's the weightless scoop bra, the fits everybody bra, the plunge bra, the fits everybody t-shirt bra. I always get them in sand, so you never notice them. Super comfortable. Love them. Wear them nonstop all the time. Shop Skims bras at skims.com now. Available in 62 sizes, 38 of 46H, plus get free shipping on orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know I sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows. Your business was going great, but now your team is buried in manual work. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025, 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash Jillian. That's netsuite.com slash Jillian to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash Jillian. All right, team, as promised, we are back with gastroenterologist extraordinaire, Dr. Robin Chutkin. And you remember us talking when we were going over her new book, The Antiviral Gut. Doc, welcome back. Thank you. It's so good to be back with you. Uh, We got a lot for you, and we're kicking off this series to discuss all things bloat. And you and I were going over this extensive list, my God, before the show. So I'm not going to waste a ton of time because the questions for you are extensive and the topics you're going to get into are extensive. I want to start with this one because I got at least 10 questions, right? How do I know if I'm actually bloated? What does it mean? Whereas like, what if it's belly fat? What if it's ovarian cancer? What if I just have Crohn's? And I thought, my God, can can all of these things be misconstrued as bloat? Wouldn't bloat be gas or like that's nope. almost like oh. is it water weight like what does it mean and so I'm, I'm handing it over to you here you're absolutely right that all of these things you mentioned can bloat you crohn's and inflammation ovarian cancer just plain old belly fat all of these things and we're going to be spending some time talking about when bloating turns toxic toxic bloating how do you know if you're just severely bloated versus you're bloated because of a more sinister cause but let's get to that first burning question how can you tell bloating from belly fat Bloating is usually caused by gas. So you're right. It's typically gas. It's a feeling, sometimes a physical fluid. feeling. A feeling. Now, sometimes fluid can cause bloating. And that's something we call ascites. That can be a problem, a sign of bad things. So for the most part, we're talking about gas. But here's the thing. 
it ebbs and flows. So some mornings you're flat as a board. And then by dinner time, you look six months pregnant. I've heard this a million times from people all the time. Yep. All the time. Okay. So you can literally, you know, you can go up a pants size during the course of the day or things are fine for several days. And then all of a sudden you have a bunch of days when you can't button your pants. So if you're not sure whether your bulge is bloat or belly fat, this is what I want you to do to help figure it out. Measure around your waist using a tape measure first thing in the morning and then again at bedtime every day for a week, every day in a row. If you're bloated, you'll typically see that those numbers vary a bit. The morning numbers, the afternoon numbers from day to day. But if you have belly fat masquerading as bloating, the measurement really shouldn't change by more than about half an inch or so. While you have that tape measure out, I want everybody to use it for another super important number, and that is your waist to height ratio, Yeah, also known as the index of central obesity, which sounds sort of scary, like some sort of government agency, but you need to know this number. Everybody needs to know this number for themselves, and here's why. Because if your waist circumference is more than half your height, even if you are not significantly overweight, it, that's, that's a sign that you may have more belly fat than you thought. And that can be a problem for things like metabolic syndrome, et cetera. So that waist to height ratio, this index of central obesity, important number. Okay. So doc, now we've established, right. We are either carrying some extra weight in our stomach or we're in fact, quote, bloated. Now, how can you discern if it's something like an ovarian cyst? ovarian cancer, it's Crohn's, it's uh, a food allergy, it's like, where do you begin to figure out the root of the problem? And I I mean, it's like overwhelming to be kind of honest. you're, You're getting at something that is so important for every medical problem we encounter. So every time I see a patient, I have two questions in my mind. What's the most likely diagnosis and what's the most lethal diagnosis? And what you hope is that those two things are not the same. So if I'm seeing someone, for example, who's having rectal bleeding, I'm thinking most likely diagnosis hemorrhoids, but most lethal diagnosis, colon cancer. And fortunately, fortunately, most of the time, those two things are not the same. But if I'm seeing somebody who has had rectal bleeding for six months, has lost weight, is having pain, is has a strong family history of colon cancer. Now that rectal bleeding, now the most likely and the most lethal are starting to coalesce. So we can apply that same logic to bloating. And I like to yeah. think about this as, you know, when bloating turns toxic. So how do you know? Because okay. it really is the most important question that you're asking, Jillian. How do you know if your bloating isn't just a nuisance, but really a sign of something more worrisome. So right. here are some of the signs and symptoms that can indicate that bloating is a more, that there's a more serious underlying condition going so on. So it's a compilation of symptoms you're looking at then. It's, it's a like, compilation. Okay, bloating with XYZ means exactly. this, bloating with ABC means exactly. that. Exactly. It's Got the it. red right, flags, as I call Got them, it. the red flags of bloating. So here okay. are the three main categories. Before we get into what the actual flags are, Here are the three main categories of worrisome conditions with bloating. We're worried about cancer, about some sort of mechanical obstruction, and about infection are generally the big three. There's inflammation too, but these are the things we don't want to miss. 
And of course, cancer is the category most of us worry the most about. And that's a diagnosis you definitely don't want to miss. I mean, they call ovarian cancer the silent killer because so often people, it's not that it doesn't have symptoms, but people don't recognize the symptoms and bloating can be one of the symptoms that's of ovarian Cindy, cancer. Cindy had it. And that's exactly what she had was bloating. Oh, wow. And it was like well, the size of a grapefruit, right, Cindy? Yeah, I had, yeah, two of them were were like, yeah, they were huge. I just knew because it, I know my body. And when I pushed on my belly, it I could feel resistance. I felt something. So I just went right to the doctor and was like, this isn't right. Well, thank goodness you did that because so many people I think would just think, okay, I'm constipated or, and here's the thing, Cindy. So again, so relieved that you are here well with us past (laughs) this, but even though ovarian cancer isn't the most likely cause of toxic bloating, it is one of the potentially most lethal. So that is why it's a fifth most common cancer in women but it causes more deaths than any other reproductive cancer. And that's why it's so important to sort of know your body, be in touch. You you pushed and said, okay, something doesn't feel right. Or if you're having bloating. So here's the thing. Persistent bloating is really suggestive of ovarian cancer. A British study, it's a little bit old from 2008, but that study showed that 86% of women with ovarian cancer had persistent bloating and distension whereas only 4.5% had fluctuating bloating. So Cindy, I want to ask you, if you don't mind, sure. did you have persistent bloating when you think back? I don't think so. What what I think really saved me was these were such fast growing tumors uh, that there was something there to notice. There was really something there to say, wait a minute, this isn't normal. Because I had just seen my doctor three months before and wow, I was fine. Wow. So I was going to default yeah. to that. That was going to be my next question is, you know, could we also begin to rule this out with routine checkups with our OBGYN? Um, well, a good pelvic exam definitely right. can often pick something up. If we need to go further, a transvaginal ultrasound where a probe is inserted through the vagina so they can get a deeper right. look. And then there's a blood test, CA-125. But here's the thing, that's not a reliable screening test. It can be helpful if you've been diagnosed to follow the course after treatment, but it's not a reliable screening test. So it's re- we're really still counting on being in touch with our own bodies as you are, Cindy, and being observant and realizing something isn't right, and then going in and getting checked, whether it's a really thorough pelvic exam, plus minus a pelvic ultrasound, because Cindy, you had fast growing tumors, which is sort of good and bad, right? In this case, it was right. good, but some people don't, some people don't. And if they ignore stuff, but again, I, I draw people's attention to that study. 86% of women with ovarian cancer had persistent bloating. They woke up with it. They went to bed with it. It was with them throughout the day versus right. less than 5% with it being on and off. So if you're somebody and you're you know just sort of bloated all the time, of course, it doesn't mean you have ovarian cancer, but it means that you have to take it more seriously and you have to think about how you're going to investigate it. Doc, does that come with pain? It can come with pain. So let's, I'm glad you mentioned pain. So we talked about the sort of categories, right? And yes. so let's talk about categories and let's talk about right? symptoms. Okay. Symptoms. Okay. Sorry. Okay. So cancers Jumping that ahead. are most strongly associated with bloating. Cancers of the reproductive tract, like ovarian and uterine, 
gastrointestinal cancers like colon, stomach, pancreatic, and liver, and some advanced stages of breast cancer that have spread to the liver, but that's sort of unusual. So you should be thinking about GI tract and reproductive tract. Weight loss is definitely one of the warning signs for what I call toxic bloating. Again, the bloating that's being caused by something worrisome. Yeah. Particularly if that weight loss is 10% or more of your body weight, or if you're losing weight without changing your diet, starting a new exercise regimen or doing something like that. So, and that's because the tumor can be pressing on your stomach or intestines, making you feel full or it can be secreting substances that suppress your appetite. So those are typically the two ways wow. the tumor can make you lose weight. But here's the okay. thing, weight gain can also be a sign of toxic bloating if you have a large, fast-growing tumor in the abdomen or pelvis. So for you, Cindy, you talked about these two tumors being the size of grapefruits. You probably hadn't lost any weight. You might have gained. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I, I didn't notice anything. She's a toothpick like, yeah. too. Cindy's a little twig person. <laughs> so. I definitely would have noticed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you can have, for certain tumors, you can have something called ascites, A-S-C-I-T-E-S, which is fluid that develops in the abdomen or pelvis. And we typically see that with liver disease, but uh, cancers can cause ascites too. And that can, you know, when you have what we call like really sort of massively dilated abdomen, massively distended abdomen, that is often from ascites. And so other symptoms to think about, nausea and vomiting, um, bloating that's accompanied by persistent nausea, loss of appetite, feeling of fullness. Those are things that should prompt immediate medical attention. Pain that you asked about, Jillian. You know, it's a subjective sensation, but, but all of us, we're in the best position for our own bodies to know whether our pain represents something worrisome and something different. And so you may not know the exact diagnosis, but you got to trust your instincts. If you are having abdominal or pelvic pain that feels different from the occasional discomfort you get from eating too much or with your period or something, you got to definitely, absolutely ate too much cabbage. You definitely, and, and here's the thing. If the first doctor doesn't take you seriously, get a second, a third, a fourth, a sixth, a seventh opinion, you know, keep going. Right. To make okay. sure you get evaluated and get that reassurance at all as well. Doc, when you, you say obstruction, is this constipation? No, obstruction is different. So you can be blocked if you're constipated. You've got a big wad of stool in there and it's not okay. coming out and that can sort of block you. But when we talk about a obstruction in medicine, we're typically talking about something that is really completely impeding the passage of the products of digestion. And that can be from scar tissue that developed after surgery. And here's the thing, the surgery could have been 20 years ago. We see scar uh-huh. tissue in people who had, you know, appendectomy, appendix removed in childhood, and now they're in their forties or a woman who had a hysterectomy at 30 and at 60. So that scar is having a bowel obstruction. So scar tissue can be from old surgery or more recent surgery. Got it. And radiation can do it. If you had some sort of cancer and you had radiation for it, that can cause scar tissue. Um, A tumor obviously can obstruct the bowel. Like a tumor coming out of the uterus can press on the colon and obstruct it. So the, the tumor doesn't have to be in the GI tract. It can be in a nearby organ. And the pain from a bowel obstruction is different from just the pain from being constipated and blocked that pain tends to occur in waves as a bowel tries to push the contents of digestion through the obstructed area. 
And the pain, the interesting thing, Jillian, the pain is from the distension of the bowel. It's not from the area where the bowel is blocked or narrowed. It's from the area above it dilating and stretching. My God, that would be so confusing though, because it's not localized. It's like you can't pinpoint it to something. That's the other thing with stomach. It's like, oh, you've had a cyst burst. Is it your appendix? Is it a gallstone? Is it, you know, oh my God. It's like, are you yeah. gassy? Are you on your period? Like it, it's ridiculous how many different things. That's why I think this is so, so important to help people piece this together, especially when they go to their doctor to say, okay, these are the symptoms. I've been paying attention and, you know, I've noticed this, I've noticed that I'm having pain that's like this along with that because it's just so broad. I like you were helping me with my son who constantly has stomach issues. And, you know, when I talk to him, I'm like, he's like, oh, my stomach, the pain. I'm like, baby, what, what does it feel like? Is it nausea? No. Is it gas? No. Like he, he's, he doesn't know how, and now he's learning how to kind of describe to express it to me. It. The, the, the good thing with a boy is that you don't have to worry about. No period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That just immediately, right. like that's, that's half out. of it right there. But right. even so, you know, like, you're so right about that. It is kind of medical detectives. And that was really, Julian, that was really the impetus for the first book, Gupless. It was like, I've got to give people and especially women some tools, like a roadmap so they can roll up their sleeves and figure this out because you're absolutely right. What you said, you know, is it my liver, my gallbladder, my appendix? I mean, you think about just that right side, you've got liver, gallbladder, appendix, and ovary, bowel. (laughs) It was two years. And you know what it was? A gallstone. Two wow. years, they couldn't figure it out. If only I had, I'd met you previously. But gallstones, she had to have her gallbladder removed. It was like nauseous and blow, swelling. I don't know. Wow. My stomach's always been fine. And they could find, oh, is it an ulcer? Is it H. pylori? Yeah. Is it this? Is it gluten intolerance? Gallstones. And Two that's why, years. again, like... I always say to people, you know, let's do the real evaluation first and then let's fiddle with the diet. Let's do the elimination of the sad gas. But I don't want to be eliminating, you know, my sad gas elimination, my soy, artificial sweeteners, dairy, gluten, alcohol, sugar to find out that you have gallstones or colon cancer or diverticulosis, you know, so it's still important to do that good basic physical exam. We have some really easy non-invasive tests like an ultrasound to do of the gallbladder. Sometimes a colonoscopy is indicated. And I always like to get that out of the way because again, my worst nightmare is to be treating somebody for constipation who actually has colon cancer and we're wasting time. So you have an obstruction. How do they find it? Can they find it with the tests you're talking about? And then that's a surgical change. No, they can sometimes find it with just an x-ray because what they'll see is they'll see at the level of obstruction, they'll see what they call air fluid levels. You know, you can see like a clear line across because remember- even when it's obstructed, the digestive tract is still secreting liquid, digestive enzymes, et cetera, gastric juices are still flowing down. So you end up seeing these air fluid levels and um, you'll often see like a dilated area above with a lot of air and air fluid levels and no stool and then stool below. So you can usually diagnose it on an abdominal X-ray. Sometimes we need a CAT scan, but usually a good abdominal X-ray, what we call a flat plate and an upright. So we do an X-ray with a person lying down and then we do one with them sitting up and we see those air fluid levels. And bowel obstruction pain will usually come on more suddenly. Not always, but that's usually, you know, 
it begins and then it sort of gets more and more and crescendos. And then you're like, okay, something is really wrong here. And it, you know, can feel like labor pain because it's the same thing with the, what happens, like the cervix is normally big enough from maybe a ballpoint pen tip to go through. And now it has to dilate for a baby's head to come through. So it's that stretching. We have very exquisite stretch receptors in some of our visceral organs, the cervix, the gastrointestinal tract. And so when I'm doing a colonoscopy, I can take my little heat probe and I can cut off a polyp and the person feels nothing. But if I blow air into their colon and inflate it too much, it's agonizingly painful because of the stretch receptor. So we have more exquisite stretch receptors than we have pain receptors. And so anything that causes stretching like the dilated bowel above the obstructed area, like the dilating cervix, that can cause a lot of pain. The third one, we had cancer, obstruction, and there was a third one. Yeah, that was infection. So when we see bloating accompanied by fever, that should really tip us off that that could be infection or inflammation, rarely cancer, but more infection or inflammation. So that is a good time to get some blood work done, have the doctor check a white blood cell count, see if that's elevated. And we need to think about pelvic sources, pelvic inflammatory disease, PID, urinary tract infections, bladder infections, or a gastrointestinal source. So that could be, you know, you've got a foodborne illness, you've got some sort of parasitic infection, et cetera. So think pelvic, urinary, or gut. And you're looking for a fever and a white blood cell count to check for elevated white blood cell count. Got it. When you look at things like Crohn's and diverticulitis, what is that? Is that autoimmune or... Crohn's is, but not diverticulitis. So Crohn's disease is a sister disease to ulcerative colitis. And those two diseases form something called IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, completely different set of conditions from irritable bowel syndrome. But sometimes people confuse IBS, IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. Those are serious autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, you know, those are in that same category except they affect the gut. So Crohn's can affect any part of the GI tract, usually the small bowel and colon. And ulcerative colitis typically affects just the colon. And those diseases, most people, like with Crohn's disease, 80, 90% of people are diagnosed before their third decade. So those are diseases that usually typically present in younger age, but we can see a second peak with people having these diseases and presenting in their 40s and 50s and even 60s. But those are autoimmune diseases. Diverticulitis refers to infection or inflammation of diverticulosis, which is a common problem in the U.S. 50% of people over 50 because of not eating enough fiber in the diet. And those are like little potholes in the colon that develop. But I'm glad you mentioned it because diverticulosis is a really common cause of bloating because those pockets fill up with stool and they don't empty. And so you're walking around with, you know, two pounds of stool in these little pockets in your colon and you're super uncomfortable. Oh my God. I thought that was like some bullshit master cleanse. Oh no, no, no. food. No, diverticulosis is real. You're carrying, not that diverticulosis wasn't real, but the 
could you be carrying like a bunch of poop in your, and I was like, oh my God, this is some, <laughs> you know, oh, just stick a hose in your rear end and we'll blow it out. I was like, you're just an a-hole. No. Well, but- the, here's the thing. I mean, you are right in the sense that don't our GM tract is like a self-cleaning oven, right? right. Do we not don't stick a hose to- in your bum. Exactly. We don't need to do that. Um, but diverticulosis is definitely a super, you know, a real thing for sure. Oh my goodness. Okay. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to know what we can, what we can do about that. That's no good. And since you're telling me a lot of people get it, I, I want to figure out how to reverse that and how to prevent it. I want to talk about hormones and bloating and then all the obvious food stuff that you mentioned earlier and this descending colon thing you mentioned so much more to get into guys. We'll be right back with rock star gastroenterologist, Dr. Robin Chutkin. Stick with us. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, team, we are back with Dr. Robin Chutkin, author of The Antiviral Gut. Um, We left off with you horrifying me, uh, telling you what diverticulosis is, Doc, and then telling me that uh, how many people over 50 are going to suffer with this? Half the population. Here's the thing, Julian, you and I, so I love to talk about poop and all things gut, and you love to ask questions about it. I feel like if you locked us in a room... (laughs) For 24 hours, we would just we would just keep going and going and going and we'd like more, more who questions and answers. Yeah. Dog. So diverticulosis is wow. Okay. Here is the thing. If you look at a map of the world and you look at countries that are less developed, like sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and particularly if you think of places like Burkina Faso, where a lot of the Mossi tribes still live very in rural areas, very much like their Neolithic ancestors. So they are doing a lot of farming and they're eating a lot of root vegetables. They eat occasional termites or chicken, but it's a plant-based high, high fiber diet. We're talking about, you know, 80, 90 grams of unprocessed fiber. They have okay. bowel movements literally the size of my head and I have a big head <laughs> and they have no colon cancer, diverticulosis, Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome. Now they're, you know, I'm not suggesting it's a utopia. They have cholera and tuberculosis and other things to worry about and and being able to get enough food. But the point is that in this diet, which is massive amounts of unprocessed fiber, the colon is as happy as it could be. So we don't necessarily need to have poops the size of my head, but we do want to have these really robust bowel movements that really clean everything out of the colon. And so if we look at a map of the world and we look at these countries with a high intake of unprocessed fiber, we see very low rates of diverticulosis. And if we look at North America, Western Europe, where we eat a more processed sort of more animal protein, less fiber, 
we have small Western poops, you know, they're, they're just not, they're not impressive. Like they don't necessarily, you don't like have a bowel movement and want to like take a picture of it. I mean, you and I do, <laughs> of course, but, um, but wow, a lot of people and maybe a lot of people listening do. Yes. And if you do send me some pics, I love looking at poop pics, but um, <laughs> I don't, is that like illegal? Does that count as like, know, kind of like, like, like what kind of show are we doing today? I mean, but you can we tell, just air like that reading, clip, Doc. We're going to get a whole new audience. It's I like, like it. reading tea leaves, you know, like I'm yes, a poo doc. I understand. If you're not showing That's me your poo, I, it's hard, you know. So, uh, my, so that, my internist used to tell me that all the time. I hope you're looking in the toilet. Yes. I was like, oh my God, really? You've got to turn around Take yeah. a look. I mean, like the cardiologists do EKGs, you know, we, yeah. we look at poop, but so again, we see high levels of diverticulosis in countries where we don't eat as much fiber. And I see a lot of patients who in their forties and fifties and sixties, may be eating tons of fiber. They may be vegans, plant-based whole foods, plant-based diet, but typically in their early years and their early teen years, they didn't. And that's when a lot of this can get laid down. So you want to, you know, you want to encourage your kids. Like that's what I was going to ask you. Is it fixable once you have it? It it is very fixable, but here's the thing with the kids. Even if your kid is a devout Mac and cheese eater, just make sure that, you know, throw some spinach in there, give them a carrot. Cause it's less about what they're eating. That's not so good. And it's more about what they're not eating and what they're missing. So you got to figure out a way to get some fiber into them. So with the diverticulosis, it literally, it's like potholes in the colon, literally. And it's typically down in the sigmoid colon, the bottom part of the colon, right above the rectum, which is kind of the big storage area for stool. So here's the thing about people with diverticulosis. They often are constipated, but they're having frequent bowel movements. And here's how that works. The rectum has to fill with a certain amount of stool to trigger the different receptors and sphincters to open and close and push the stool out. I won't bore you with all the details. People who have diverticulosis have a lot of stool down low, but it's not in the rectum. It's in the sigmoid colon right above the rectum. And so the sigmoid colon, the pockets are literally bulging, like your suitcase is totally full. But so they feel that urge to go, but they can't push anything out because it's not in the rectum. So oh, one wow. of the really simple things that I, I do see. for people with diverticulosis is I put them on a fiber supplement like psyllium husk. Yes. Because I that see. is that broom yep. that just sweeps, sweeps out those out. pockets into the rectum and now they can go. So typically they'll come in and tell me, doc, I'm having, you know, four five, six little stingy, small, pebbly little kind of goat-like heavily bowel movements and multiple times a day. And when I put them on the psyllium husk, they're like, but I'm not constipated. I'm having the opposite problem. I'm like, no, you're having a problem called tenesmus, incomplete evacuation. And this is going to consolidate your six, you know, little goat-like pellets wow. into one or two nice big stool nirvana, because my head bowel movements. Understood. So that's, that's the role of the psyllium. So for so many people, like they can't understand, they're like, I feel the stool down there and I have the urge, but it's just not coming out. Yep. And it's because it's stuck in these pockets. And of course, lots of water helps too. Okay. So doc, you also had mentioned to me previously, um, there's another reason for this. This is not a scary one. You, I, I don't think it's called the voluptuous venous colon. Am I getting this right? Yeah, it's it's a delicious one. Let me tell you why. what does this so, mean. I, I came up with this term because gastroenterology is a is a really unusual field in the sense that 
the vast majority of the patients are female, but the vast majority of the doctors are male. And so when I joined the faculty at Georgetown in 1997, I, I was the first woman they'd had in the GI department, shockingly. And wow. one of the things I noticed is that when gastroenterologists talked about a colon that had a lot of loops and twists and turns to it, they called it a redundant colon. And I was like, hmm, or a tortuous colon. Oh, and I thought, okay, no. nobody wants to be told tortuous. they have a redundant, tortuous colon. I mean, that no. sounds terrible. So I started awful. calling it after I, you get really good at colonoscopy when you do colonoscopy in women a lot, because we do have a twistier, turnier, curvier colon for three important reasons I'm going to tell you about. So I started telling patients, you don't have a redundant, tortuous colon you have a voluptuous venous colon. You're curvy nice. on the inside like you are on the outside. <laughs> and yes, it is making my job getting to the end of your colon really challenging and difficult, wow. but I will get there. Okay. And here's the reason why. And I, it, the crazy thing is, you know, I've been a doctor for over a decade before I knew this. And I had not just been a doctor, but a gastroenterologist because nobody ever told me this until I was asked to write a chapter in a textbook about colonoscopy in women. And I was like, okay, I know how to do colonoscopy in women, but let's, let's look at a lot of the scientific data. And one of the numbers that was floating out there was this number that women have a much higher rate of incomplete colonoscopy, meaning they go to have a colonoscopy for- And they can't get to the end of it. Or they're having gas or bleeding or something, and they can't get to the end. And for literally from the beginning of time, Jillian, Everybody chalked that up. And by everybody, I mean all my male colleagues to, well, women just have a lower threshold for pain. They're oh, just- you know, Shut up. Come I on. Not, I not. Oh, and I God. was like, okay, I, none of you have ever been in labor. Uh, but if you had, you would just shut your mouth right wow, now. See, that that's like habit, 50s, right? like, 1950s that, talk to that me. Was, wow. I mean, I wrote that this That was not chapter, that long ago. I wrote yep. this chapter in like 2004, maybe. So- Okay. Not that long ago. And I was like, Ooh. when I was writing the chapter, I'm like, first myth I want to dispel is this idea that women somehow have a, a lower threshold. And that's why colonoscopy is more incomplete. And one of the first things I found were all these anatomical differences. So there are three really important ones I want people to know about. The first is that we have longer colons than men, an average of about six centimeters longer. And six centimeters may not seem like a lot, but it adds a lot of extra looping. Why wow. do we have longer colons? One of the theories is the main function of the colon, the large intestine, not just, I mean, yes, part of the job is to transport stuff from the small intestine to the finish line out right. the end. But during that process, the lining of the colon reabsorbs water. When the stool comes out of the small intestine, it's very liquid. And as it travels along the colon, water gets reabsorbed so that at the end, you get a nice, solid, chocolatey brown poo. Okay. And so one of the theories is we have longer colon so we can absorb more fluid out of the products of digestion to maintain fluid levels, amniotic fluid levels during childbearing times. Number two we have a completely different pelvis. You can tell male from female by looking at a skeleton immediately. Women have what's called a gynecoid pelvis. It is rounder, it is wider, again, to accommodate another 
person in there. Men have an android pelvis. It is square. It's like a little square box. It's narrower, it's squarer. So you look at a skeleton and you don't need to go to medical school for this. If I show you a female skeleton and a male skeleton, the pelvis, and then I give you a hundred skeletons to look at, you'd be able to identify the gender probably with a hundred percent accuracy. I mean, it is that dramatic, the pelvic structure, very, very dramatic. And so we have this wider pelvis. Okay, well, what else is down in the pelvis? The bladder, the uterus, the fallopian tubes, the ovaries. We've got a lot of hardware down in the pelvis. In men, because they have a narrower, more boxy pelvis, most of their colon tends to be higher up in the abdomen. There's not a lot of competition. And when it is in the pelvis, what do they have? A little bitty prostate gland, right? They have a bladder too, but they don't have a uterus Mm -hmm. and the uterus is big. They don't have a uterus. They don't have. So the there's no tube. crowding they down there, basically. There's no for crowding. Them. They have space. So our colon has to wind around all this other stuff. That's number two. Number three. Number three. Lower levels of testosterone. What that lower testosterone level means is that our abdominal muscles are not as tight and don't hold in that colon as well. It's kind of like our Spanx is a little stretched out compared to a man. So you can see a man with a big old bear belly, but he's not bloated because underneath all that belly fat is a tighter abdominal wall just by virtue of differences in testosterone that's holding in all those, you know, that 30 foot digestive superhighway that's all coiled up in there. So you were my poster girl long oh, before I, I had the pleasure of, of, of actually knowing you. Yeah. So the, so there oh, you have it. The voluptuous venous colon, longer colon, deeper, wider pelvis and lower testosterone levels. So, you know, I like to say if I had a dollar for every woman I see with bloating, I would be a gazillionaire because of a lot of these anatomical differences. And we haven't even gotten into the hormonal differences. I was just going to say, can we segue to that? I'm going to admit some sexism on my own part here because I, whenever I would work with women and men, I was a trainer and then I worked on Biggest Loser. I had female clients, male clients. Men would never bitch about this stuff. I always thought this was kind of like, oh, women and their emotions. Like it's got to be like psychosomatic, you know, they've, and now I'm so ashamed to say this stuff because I was like, why are men never bloated? Come on. You know, no, <laughs> no, well, it, it's a natural ass. assumption I'm, to make. Oh, it's a very sorry. natural assumption. But I apologize you know, to everybody. Listen, I, Jillian, I, 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 I am a highly trained medical professional. I mean, I'm a gastroenterologist and I didn't know until I started to research it for this chapter. So with that said, you've educated me to a certain extent thus far that hormones actually play a huge role in this. Can you explain that to the audience? Absolutely. So the menstrual cycle is divided into these three phases, a follicular phase followed by ovulation and then the luteal phase. And the different phases are associated with a lot of other changes in your body in addition to what's happening in your uterus. So body temperature fluctuations, altered libido. Sometimes you're in the mood. Sometimes you are not in the mood. Sometimes you're kind of in the mood. Speaking of mood, mood swings changes in thyroid hormone production, neurological symptoms like migraines, and of course, bloating. So fluctuating hormone levels lead to three important changes. I I realize, like in all my talks, it's always three because, you know, there may be seven, but these are the three you need to know. And I feel like three is about as much as I can handle of anything. 
there are a few others, but these are the three most important that I want you to remember. Three hormonal changes, and it's the fluctuations in the hormones. It's the changing levels that typically cause it. So you get an increase in intestinal gas production based on that fluctuating estrogen progesterone level. You get an increase in water and salt retention by the kidneys. Believe it or not, estrogen and progesterone actually also act on the kidneys. So you get more water and salt retention, and that's why people retain a lot of water around their period, and you get a decrease in bile production in the gut. Now, what does bile production have to do with, you know, (laughs) reproductive hormones? And what does it have to do with bloating? Well, bile helps to emulsify or break down fats and lubricate the small intestine. So it's like that dishwashing liquid. Like, you know, when you're washing a plate, a greasy plate with water yeah. and the grease won't come off. Soap but then on you it put, to break it up. Yeah. You put the soap on it and it emulsifies it and now yes. it comes off. So bile helps to do that in the small intestine. And when you have low levels of bile, which is what this fluctuation in the reproductive hormones causes, you get accumulation of the products of digestion within the small intestine. So you get a slowdown and you get bloating and constipation. And estrogen is especially associated with water retention, which is why so many women experience bloating in the days leading up to their period as estrogen levels rise. And here's the thing about menopause. We think about menopause as, you know, okay, time's up, you know, no estrogen. But what a lot of people don't realize is that in the time leading up to estrogen and the per- it, leading up to menopause in the perimenopausal time frame, you can actually have rising levels of estrogen. And then because of the rate at which estrogen and progesterone fluctuate, even with a dropping estrogen, if the progesterone drops more, you can have something called estrogen dominance. So again, it's not the actual level it is a relative level of one to the other and the changes that's really important. Can we can we mitigate that with like exercise, water, low salt? We, we absolutely can. And, and here's the thing that I like to remind people. I see a lot of women in the perimenopausal, menopausal age range, and they invariably come to me and they say, doc, I'm doing the exact same thing I've always done, but I'm gaining weight unexpectedly and I'm bloated and blah, blah, blah. And I say to them, that is exactly the problem. You're doing exactly the same Same thing thing. you did. Like your body is different. You are, you know, you have a change. You are a different person hormonally, physiologically, et cetera. So you have to do things differently. Just like in that earlier change, menarche, when girls start to menstruate, they, you know, you do things differently as a 20 year old from you did as a nine year old, right? Your body is different. So the same thing. So we have to, you know, we have to sort of make that leap. And one of the things is that we can't eat the same amount of food and not gain weight. So eating less, even if you're not specifically changing, you know, doing elimination diets, or but just eating, doing a little calorie shifting where you're eating a bigger breakfast, bigger lunch, lighter dinner, because at night the digestive tract shuts down. It's tied to the circadian rhythm. It's not moving. So if you are dumping in the majority of your calories after dark, it's going to sit there and you're going to feel bloated. So changing up how you eat, eating more earlier in the day, lighter dinner, less food in general, of course, moving more, all of that. And that is often a time too when women become a little more sensitive to certain foods. So you might've done fine before with gluten or dairy, but now you find gluten and dairy are a little bit more bloating 
So when I was writing the first book, Gut Bliss, I wanted to write a section that could help people figure out what are the food causes because it can seem really overwhelming. And it's like, well, what am I supposed to eat? So in Gut Bliss, the elimination plan is, and it sort of cleverly worked out to be sad gas, S-A-D-G-A-S. So let's deal with the sad part first. Sad soy. Why does soy cause bloating in some people? Because it can have estrogen-like effects that cause bloating and weight gain. Now, that's not in everybody, but it may be in you. So this is why I I recommend taking out sad gas, all of it, for about two weeks and then adding things in one by one. The A for the sad is artificial sweeteners. And we know that artificial sweeteners, there's all kinds of other reasons to take them out, even if you're not bloated, because they are- problematic for the microbiome. They can make certain bacteria more pathogenic. They can disrupt communication between microbes. But here's what they also do. They get fermented in the small bowel and that fermentation causes gas and bloating. They get fermented hydrogen, methane, et cetera. So they tend to be very bloating. Saccharin, aspartame, sucralose. Am I adding sugar alcohols like xylitol, erythritol, all of it. Yes. maltitol? All of the, all the non-nutritive sweeteners. Oh, wow. So even if they're not like technically toxic, right? He's like, oh, right. sugar alcohol is not as bad as aspartame. Yeah. No, it's all the locale ones because the fact that they're not absorbed in the small is intestine, they get fermented. Havoc. Bingo. Right. And that's why they don't contribute calories because they're not being absorbed there, but they're being broken stevia? down and fermented. Stevia is less problematic because it doesn't so much disrupt the composition of the microbiome, but we have recent data that it also disrupts the communication between <gasps> microbes, which is important. Oh so God, I I'm know. a big fan of just regular sugar, honey. Got yeah. it. And not, not in large doses. Okay. Not Sorry, in large doctor. doses. Okay. So the D. dairy lactose intolerance, more than half the world is lactose intolerant. And that's because dairy is primarily a food that's designed for baby cows. That is who it is ultimately designed for. And so as we, as adults, as we get older, we tend to lose our ability to tolerate dairy. That enzyme, the lactase enzyme that is along the brush border, along the villi in the gut tends to get knocked out. And we, and particularly after an infection. So if you've had any kind of GI infection, you will often find traveler's diarrhea, et cetera, foodborne illness. You'll often find that you are lactose intolerant afterwards. But again, from most people are, and even if you're not fully lactose intolerant, there's often some degree of lactose intolerance and it can be gas and bloating. So that we got through the sad soy, artificial sweeteners, dairy. Don't kill me. Hang on one sec. Are all the D's the same as in is yogurt the same as milk? Because yogurt's like awesome, right? It's fermented. Does that change the game? Yogurt has less lactose in it. And so do hard cheeses. But if you're really lactose intolerant, you're going to get nailed it's a by problem. all. Yeah. Okay. Now comes the gas, gluten, alcohol, sugar. So gluten, because even if you don't have celiac disease, gluten, which is the protein in wheat, rye, barley, those foods are highly processed. It's not so much genetic modification like with soy and corn, but the wheat is has been hybridized to grow dwarf wheat. It's a shorter growing cycle. A lot of things have been done to it so that it is more convenient to grow and harvest. And the things that are made from wheat are typically very processed. So the small intestine hasn't really evolved well to process some of these refined carbohydrates. So for a lot of people, even if they're not having 
you know, terrible symptoms with gluten. Interestingly, Jillian, one of the commonest symptoms are brain fog. It's neurological symptoms that people will often notice from gluten where they feel tired. Oh no, don't tell me that because I do have brain fog, but I've always actually had it. Okay. It might might be really worth cutting out gluten for a week or two. I would tell you to see. So what I tell people is, you know, it's all about trying to figure out the root cause of things. Yours might be something completely different, but I would say it would be worth eliminating it. I mean, don't worry about like cross-contamination or stuff like that, but eliminate right, the of basic course. Just don't be, yeah, for two don't weeks go and pounding see, a loaf of bread. And then reintroduce it and see what happens. Cause that's when you can really tell. So there's gluten, alcohol. Alcohol does a number of things in the gut. Damages the I, gut I, lining, uh, impairs release of digestive enzymes from the pancreas, adds some pounds to your waistline, dehydrates you, which will cause a rebound fluid retention and puffiness. But again, everything in moderation, right? I mean, if you're pounding the drinks, that's something to think about. If you're having something to drink every now and again, probably fine. Alcohol is what we call bactericidal, meaning it kills microbes. Now, it depends on what else you're doing to kill microbes. Are you taking lots of antibiotics? Are you eating a crummy diet? Are you, you know, oh, are you drinking a ton I of alcohol see. versus are you having an occasional cocktail or glass of wine or something? But But yes, it does have, alcohol does have a detrimental effect on the microbiome overall. Overall. And then just to, let me drive that last (laughs) nail into the coffee now with sugar. Okay, but can we say processed sugar? Because fruit has fructose and everybody bashes fructose. I'm like, but it's not high fructose corn syrup. Processed refined sugar. I'm talking about bags and bags of Halloween candy, right? Feed the wrong gut bacteria. Got belly it. fat because they cause insulin secretion and insulin causes a lot of those calories to be stored as fat. So everything in moderation. I mean, I have, there's times and I have all of it. Well, never, I never have artificial sweeteners, but, um, you know, I have alcohol, sure. I have sugar, I have a little bit of moderation, there, a little bit of dairy. Yeah. But I all in moderation. And I also listen to how I feel. I know that if I go get a waffle cone, with three scoops, I'm going to feel terrible. All right. I know you need to go, but I want to just say one thing about this sugar thing. I've got a question about that and it's it's personal again. So all the stuff you told me to do, my son is on, is literally at Cedars right now at the pediatric gastroenterologist place. You told me to send him, right? He's drinking sugar. He's drinking that like sugar stuff and he's blowing into a tube every 15 minutes. Here's the problem, doc. They They think it's sugar and gluten. If it is, my ex slash co-parent, Heidi, was like, I'm just telling you right now that if it is that, Jill, they're saying he's got too much of the bad bacteria and he's going to need antibiotics. What if somebody gets this diagnosis and they get that advice? Okay, so the whole reason we call it SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, is so that the pharmaceutical company can sell you an antibiotic. I'll oh, just tell you that because it really no. is dysbiosis. When you call it bacterial overgrowth, you're like, oh, I have too much bacteria. Let me yes, take an antibiotic. That's what they're but saying. When you look at it through the lens of dysbiosis, which imbalance. is an imbalance. So it's like a yeast infection. You have extra yeast because you took an antibiotic and killed off the healthy bacteria. So I don't know in your son's case, but for a lot of people who have SIBO or dysbiosis, it's because they took one too many antibiotics or they were on acid blockers or they were eating a sugary, low-fat diet. It's typically antibiotics in kids. And the worst thing you can do is add more antibiotics. Doc, last question. Question of the week. Perfect timing for it. How do you reset after antibiotics? 
Well, the first thing I want people to know is that there is no pill, potion, probiotic out there that can completely reverse the damage of antibiotics. So that's just a fact. Antibiotics are designed to kill bacteria. Anti against biota bacteria. So that is going to happen. But there's some things that you can do. Number one, first of all, make sure the antibiotic is 100% necessary. Press your healthcare provider. Ask that simple question, is this antibiotic absolutely necessary? Follow it up with, hmm, what would happen if I didn't take this antibiotic? Because you'd be surprised how much of the time the answer is, oh, no, you don't really need Nothing. to take it. This could be viral, what, you know, yep. it would be self-limited. So ask those important questions. And I do, I give those questions in the book, in the new book, the antiviral gut questions to ask if you've been prescribed an antibiotic. Number two, ask for a more narrow spectrum antibiotic because that will kill fewer bacteria. A probiotic can't completely mitigate the damage, but it can help. You need to start it when you start the antibiotic and continue it for about 30 days after. You want to take it in the middle of the antibiotic. So if you're taking an antibiotic at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., you want to take the probiotic at 2 p.m. And again, I give lots of advice in the book about what kind of probiotic, how much, et cetera. And then while you're on the antibiotic and for a month or two after, you want to cut down on the sugary starchy food because again, that's going to feed the wrong bacteria. You want to increase the MAC type food, microbiota accessible carbohydrates. So that's the whole greens, the legume, the beans and greens, basically. Yeah. You want to really focus on those. If you are having trouble with yeast overgrowth, you want to eat some yeast fighting foods like pumpkin seeds, seaweed, rutabaga, coconut oil. That's all good yeast fighting foods. You can make a mushroom tea using shiitake and maitake mushrooms, dried mushroom caps, boil with water. But really the most important thing is to really focus on your diet, high fiber foods, yep. cut down on the sugar and think about other things too, that could be harmful to your microbes during that time, like alcohol, like don't, acid blocking drugs, all those other things. Stuff. Yeah. Got you it. gotta be, you want to be super good during that time. Doc, you are a goddess. Guys, uh, we've got Gut Bliss, book number one, antiviral gut, book number two. Where do we go to get more from you, Doc? Actually, we have Gut Bliss book number one, the Microbiome uh -oh. Solution book number two, uh -oh. the Blood Cure book number three, and oh, then no. the Antiviral Gut book number four. So we got a couple couple in there. I've been You got to get the library, basically, <laughs> is what we're saying. Okay. You are wonderful. Um, website, Doc. Website, robinshutkan.com, R-O-B-Y-N-N-E-C-H-U-T-K-A-N. Find me at Gut Bliss on Instagram. Hey guys, if you're enjoying the show, do us a big favor and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it just helps us get the show out there, get it heard by more people. We really appreciate it.